Empire appears on the scene of history and he claims to be both God and the king of everyone everywhere. Three years later, he's executed. Empire appears on the scene of history and he claims to be both God and the king of everyone everywhere. Three years later, he's executed as a criminal when his few remaining followers have deserted him. He rises out of the grave, but he doesn't show himself to anyone but a few hundred unimportant followers. And then he disappears with a promise to return at some unspecified time. That is indirect, upside-down, left-handed power at work. And that is the very kind of power that Jesus is describing as his kingdom in the Beatitudes. The Gospels are about the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. The old age of sin and death, including the old covenant theocracy of Israel, has passed away. The typology is fulfilled. The reality is standing before these first century Israelites as Jesus sits like a rabbi teaching about his kingdom. Christ is the prophet, the priest, the king, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In fact, he's the temple. He personally forgives sins without animal sacrifice. He's both man and God and the sacrificial lamb. He is lion and lamb. The lamb standing, John says, as having been slaughtered. It's not here in its consummated form, but Christ's kingdom is present wherever the king is present in judgment and blessing. So let me give you an ongoing rule. Faith people, you know this already. What is rule number one? It's all about Jesus. What's rule number two? See rule number one. So as you go through the Beatitudes, those are your two rules. And one of them is the same as the other. So it's pretty simple to remember, hopefully. It's all about Jesus. See rule number one. That's your basic interpretation for all of Scripture. It is certainly your basic interpretation for the Beatitudes. The religious leaders who had cast themselves as the defenders of God's righteous reign, are rewritten now as the opponents of God and His saving purposes. The tables have turned. Right-handed human religious power is giving way to left-handed spiritual power. And that power is characterized by human weakness. Left-handed power is described in these statements of blessing. Now, generally speaking, the first four Beatitudes describe our relationship to God, and the second four describe our relationship to other people. And each of these eight builds on one another, and they're intended to be heard as one unit because the first and last Beatitude end with the same phrase. You heard it this morning, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's an inclusion. It means that whole little section with those two phrases bookending it, is one little block of teaching. Matthew does that a lot. He's he's fond of using inclusion, the method of beginning with a statement and ending a teaching block with the same statement. So Matthew sets the scene for us in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, 
And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus has been traveling around Galilee, teaching in the synagogues. Large crowds at this point in his early public ministry are following him everywhere. News about him has reached as far as Syria. People follow him out into the wilderness beyond the Jordan. Now here, he travels into the hill country with his disciples, and the crowds follow. And like any rabbi of his day, he sat down to teach. But Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is speaking to his disciples whom he has already called into the kingdom. Other people are around listening. But when Jesus sits down to teach, his, his, his followers know, his disciples know, that the rabbi is about to say something. So they gather around to listen to him, and the other people press in to listen to them. So Jesus is describing the kingdom to people in the kingdom. And the form of his statements wouldn't have been foreign to them at all. The book of Psalms opens with a beatitude a statement of blessing. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. You've heard that before. That's a beatitude. The Psalms are full of beatitudes. So is Isaiah, by the way, sprinkled through there. A lot of the exilic and post-exilic prophets have beatitudes sprinkled into them because they're describing particularly As the kingdom gets closer and closer in time, they're describing what the kingdom looks like. Blessing and its biblical opposite, curse, are words related to God's covenant with his people. Deuteronomy 28 spells out the blessings and the curses associated with God's covenant at Sinai. You might remember the story where The children of Israel enter the land and they divide up and climb up on two mountains. And one of them shouts out the blessings of the law and the other shouts out the curses of the law. The blessings boil down to this. This. One thing. Three statements from God. The blessing of divine intimacy. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will tabernacle with you. I'll live, I'll dwell with you. Those are the blessings. Blessed is a shorthand for an intimate relationship with the triune God. That's what real hashtag blessed is. It's just an intimate relationship with the great triune God. Jesus is taking a theme found in Psalms and Isaiah in particular. He's applying it to members of his kingdom. Those bedraggled, weird-looking, different job-working people that he calls his disciples. To describe the new powers of the kingdom of Christ, Jesus begins with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, whatever Jesus was saying, this was nothing like the right-handed religious power of Israel's teachers who thrived off public performances that showed off their self-made morality. So what does Jesus mean by poor in spirit? Well, first it's helpful to know what poor in spirit isn't. It doesn't mean a person who has no value whatsoever. Christ's death for us teaches us that we are of great value to the Father who sings over us, 
who loves us, who takes joy in us. It doesn't mean shyness. Many introverts are quite proud. I'm an introvert. I hate forcing myself to go to the back door and meet people. You know why? It's not because I'm shy and humble. It's because I'm arrogant. And I don't want to be seen screwing up. I might get your name wrong. I might have no recognition of you because when you came the week before, I was so burned out from preaching, I couldn't remember my own name. So I'm terrified to do that, not because I'm just shy, but because I'm arrogant. And I don't want to be seen screwing up. It doesn't mean showy humility that wakes one appear meek and humble. That too is right-handed religious power at work. And we all wake up every morning wanting to function with right-handed, direct, head-on power. Humans are all quite capable of managing our flesh to mimic characteristics that our hearts don't possess. I mean, come on, you can do it for an hour on Sunday morning, can't you? You can be just whatever you want to be the rest of the week, but for that hour, don't you want to be that nice, well-thought-of, happy, orderly, peaceful person? So everybody goes, yeah, I like that guy. You know that Luke, he's all right. Sorry, I couldn't resist, buddy. That's why we gravitate towards sermons that tell us to just roll up our sleeves and get to work on becoming poor in spirit. The Greek word translated poor originally carried the idea of cowering and cringing like a beggar. So in the New Testament, several hundred years later, by the way, in the New Testament, when this new language or this new form of Greek, simpler theoretically, is being written and disseminated, in the New Testament, the word still conjures that imagery of cringing and beggarly, but it also carries the idea of poverty so deep that one must obtain their living by begging. Somebody that's completely dependent on the kindness of strangers, an ancient Blanche Dubois. Okay, some of you are going, what's he talking about? Streetcar name desire? Anyone? Tennessee Williams? See, I try, Luke. I try and go for references people might know, but I'm so much older that nobody remembers them. I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. Anything? All right. Okay. Well, that fell flat, didn't it? Tennessee Williams, he was a gay, alcoholic, southern playwright, and he was a genius, okay? And it's a good play, so go see it if you want. But that's the kind of poverty we're talking about. In fact, worse than that, because Blanche Dubois' character pretends to be rich and important and from a big family and puts on airs. This kind of beggarly poor has no pretense left whatsoever. It's desperate, it needs to be fed, it is holding out its trembling hands, which is easy for me to do because I have a trimmer, holding out its trembling hands and saying, please, I'm dying, help me. It is a personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. It's the constant awareness and admission that we are completely sinful and bankrupt of the moral virtues necessary to commend us to a holy God. Those who are poor in spirit see themselves as spiritually needy. So we could amplify this verse and read it like this. Blessed are those who know they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit is upside down from the proud selfishness and self-sufficiency of our Western culture. The world today would say, blessed is the man who always gets his way. Blessed is the person who's strong. Blessed is the one with power to rule. Blessed is the person who's self-satisfied. Blessed is the person who's popular. Blessed is the one who cuts toxic people out of their life. Because it's always all about me. Ever since Adam's great rebellion, humans have been born with the false notion that all the answers of life are found in self. A wish is a dream your heart makes, right? What's the ultimate source of truth? People tell you, look in your heart. Look in your heart. The very thing that God's Word says is wicked and deceitful above all else. It's sick, it's failing, but humanity naturally says, look in your heart. That's the way we're born because sin has hardwired us to boot up like that every morning. We often carry that idea into church with us. And Christian narcissism winds up being promoted as biblical self-love. Jesus' kingdom morphs into the imperial self. It's no longer King Jesus, it's King Keith. And Keith wakes up King Keith every freaking morning of his life until the Holy Spirit starts to slap him around. Maybe that's the same for you. If not, you might not know Jesus yet, but that's okay, keep coming. We love people who don't know Jesus yet. That's what we're all about. Theology turns into therapy. Spiritual poverty is replaced with a search for happiness. Holiness is replaced with wholeness. Truth replaced by feeling and ethics replaced by self-care. Christ's kingdom displays a left-handed, upside-down power the very power exercised by King Jesus himself. Paul explained it to the little congregation of Philippi this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ooh, amens. You guys are really in Presbyterian today. I'm proud of you. 
When Jesus began His public ministry, He opened the scroll in the synagogue and He read from Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Jesus didn't come to make our smiles brighter, our teeth whiter, and our loads lighter. He came to give us an entirely new, upside-down power that looks to all the world like being a complete loser. There's a selling point for you, isn't it? I mean, that's not how I was taught to witness growing up in my local Bible church. How about you? Well, maybe you didn't grow up in a local Bible church, but you know what I mean. That's not how we like to think of it. He came to give us an entirely new, upside-down power that looks to everybody else like being a loser. Wrap your head around that. Here's another way to put it. He came to call the last, the lost, the least, the little, and the dead into divine fellowship. And our very first step into his kingdom is the Holy Spirit wrought realization that we bring absolutely nothing to the table that is in any way impressive to our holy triune God. The Apostle Paul had a devil of a time, pun intended, trying to convince the church of Corinth of that upside-down, left-handed nature of the kingdom. I mean, in their own eyes, they were anything but spiritually poor. They were cool. Paul was a loser. So he wrote in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the whole world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. There's a resume for you, isn't it? Trusting into the perfect righteousness and blood-shedding sacrificial death of the risen and ascended and glorified Lord Jesus Christ first involves recognizing your spiritual lastness, lostness, leastness, littleness, and deadness. Psalm 34, 18 declares the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Salvation, a right relationship with God, is by trust into Christ's person and work alone. He lived the perfect life that you and I can never live to display the holiness and to live out the holiness without which no one can see God. And he died the sacrificial blood-shedding death that you and I deserve eternally to offer that up for us. But poverty of spirit 
is the posture of saving trust. Only the poor in spirit are open to their need for God's one-way love. Only God the Holy Spirit can infuse a person with the power of Christ's kingdom that opens their heart to that poverty. We never outgrow this first beatitude. To outgrow spiritual poverty would be to outgrow our faith. To become post-Christian, just as the Corinthians were in danger of doing by rejecting Paul as that loser, that weak, no-account, poor-speaking, not pretty, not rich, sickly guy. Upside down, left-handed power. It's what the congregation of Laodicea was close to doing, just like the Corinthians were close to doing. So Jesus told the Laodiceans, for you say, I'm rich and I prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What's the remedy? When we begin to be self-satisfied and self-sufficient, and remember, if you're like me, you wake up that way naturally every day. What's the remedy? Ask God to show you more of your sin because that's your poverty. Dance the Christian two-step. What's the Christian two-step? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's the Christian two-step. Trust Christ in you, the hope of glory, to live out his life of spiritual poverty more and more and more with you. It's his kingdom power, not yours. Fortunately for us, he is ever ready to point out our self-sufficient pride and fill us with fresh poverty of spirit. He promised the self-satisfying Laodiceans, those whom I love, I reprove and train. So be zealous and repent. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. We're about to eat with Jesus today, by the way. I will eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. From the beginning of his gospel account, Matthew sets out these two basic human problems, the guilt of our sin and the bondage to the world of flesh and the devil. If you're here this morning and you're one of those people who says, I can do it, 
I can get by. I'm well-liked. I'm a nice person for an hour on Sunday morning, so people think I'm really good. So I know that I'm acceptable, and if I just sprinkle a little Jesus language on my life, everything will be fine. Then you are sadly mistaken. And our call to you this morning, the Spirit's call to you, is this. Give up. Die. Die. Just die to self and cling with dirty, shaky hands to the cross of Christ at Calvary. And all you have to do to do that this morning is simply say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for living and dying for me. And may you have no rest and no peace until you come to rest in him whom to know is life eternal, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.